Okay, today's daf is daf mem vav, babakama 46. We pick up um, at the bottom of mem hey amud bet, and amarav, it is one, two, three, five lines from the bottom, rav, amarav, that's, um, and uh, our learning should be in the merit of the protection of all of our chayalim and chayalot and the hostages and everybody who's in harm's way. All right, amarav. So we just got through a whole discussion about the level of Shemira required for a Tom and a Muad. And um, Rebbe Mayer, we'll f- we're focusing now on the positions of Rebbe Mayer and Rebbe Huda. Rebbe Mayer says um, that both a Tom and a Muad require Shemira Mu'ula, a high level of Shemira to be exempt. And um, Rebbe Huda has the ironic position that a Muad requires a low level of Shemira and a Tom requires a high level. And now Rav is saying if an animal is became a Muad for its right horn, it is not a Muad for its left horn. So an animal gored three times and all three times used its right horn horn, um, it is not a muad for its left horn. Now, uh, as Rashi and Tosos both point out, that uh, Rav doesn't need to tell us that as a general principle, meaning we already we have a lot of uh, discussion in Mishnayis and the Gemara that if an animal is muad for one thing, they're not muad for another thing. If they're muad for goring you know, cows, they're not muad for goring sheep, a lot of types of distinctions like that. And certainly, if they're muad for goring with a right horn, assuming that it's, I don't know if animals have favor their right side as well, anyway, then it would not be muad for goring its left horn just because it goes with its right. We should not assume that it's habitual to go with its left. So that idea that if it goes with its left, it will only pay half damages, that's obvious. That can't be what Rav is coming to tell us. So the assumption is, is that what Rav is coming to tell us has something to do with the issue of shmira. Okay, that if somehow there's a case in which because of this, a certain level of, because it's different between right horn and left horn, that you could want, you could do a certain level of shmira and be higher for one of the horns and not the other. Okay, so let's take a look. Um, so uh, the Mar says like this. Um, uh, okay, Ami Alibadaman, according to whom is Rav telling us this idea that it's interesting to think of right horn and left horn in terms of Shmira. If it's according to Rebuda, might your Yakaran smoke? Afilu biyami nami. I'm sorry. I skipped that line. Ieli b'dor b'meyer. I skipped line. Ieli b'dor b'meyer. Hamar echatam vechad muad shmir meula boy. So according to Rabbi Meyer, if you did there, Tom and Muad have the same level, high level of shmira. So if you did only a low level, you're high of both for the right horn and the left horn. And if you did a high level, you're putter for both. Ella, so Ieli b'dor Rabbi Yehuda. Now if it's according to Rabbi Yehuda. So might your Karen small So you could say it's interesting to think about this according to Rabbi Yehuda. You did a low level of Shmira. Now it's for that works for the right horn, that works for the muad part of the animal, but it doesn't work for the tom. So if you do a low level of shmira and it goes out and gores with its right horn, you're exempt, ironically. If it goes with its left horn, you're going to be chayev because it's a muad for the right and it's a tom for the left. But the Gemara says, but one minute, according to Rabbi Yehuda, you could have that cute idea without even introducing another horn. Why? Because Rabbi Yehuda says, um, because even in the right horn, you could have that it would gore with the right and you would be high of half damages. Why? So Rabbi Yehuda, remember, we have argued that says that Sad Thomas being Koma Omedes. So for Rabbi Yehuda, even if it, it, you just focus on the right horn and you do a minimum shmir and it goes out and gores, you'll be high of half damages because of the Tom part of the right horn. 
So the Gemara says, Ami Olam Rebbe Yehuda. We are going like Rebbe Yehuda, because that's the only way you'll have an interesting difference of a level of Shmira that will still retain an obligation for the Tom side. But but he doesn't hold, Shmuel doesn't, I'm sorry, not who is the one who said this, Rav doesn't hold of Rav Adabar Ava. He doesn't hold of this principle of Tzad Tamus Bim Komo Omedes. Once an animal becomes a Muad, they're a full Muad, okay? And you only treat it in the Muad capacity. So Vahachi Kamar, and here's what he's saying. He's really responding to Rav Adabar Ava. Ki if you do, he said, look, you, Rav Ava, you have this idea that if an animal is a muad for Rav Yehuda, there's, um, there, it's always going to be a half muad, half tam. And if you do a low level of shmira and it grows out, then even for an animal that's a, a full muad or whatever, you do a low level of shmira, you're still chayev for the half tam that's part of it. And to that, Rav says, I don't buy that. Once an animal's a muad, it's fully a muad, and if you do a low level of shmira for Rebuta, you're totally exempt. Do you want to know a scenario where a low level of shmira you'll still be chayev for half and not for the other half? I could understand that. Uh, that if you had a right horn and a left horn, a right horn and a left horn, it was muad for the right and it was tom for the left. That would be a case that you did a low level of shmira. If it gored with the right, you're exempt. If it gored with the left, you're chayev. Okay? Aval, top of memvavon aleph. If an animal is a total muad, you know, then it's all a muad. The thing it's a muad for is 100% muad. You don't have a tom come wrapped up within every muad. If you want to get an animal that's a half tom, half muad, it'll only be something like a right horn and left horn. Very nice. So that's a pushback on Ravada Barava's claim of Tzad Thomas Binkoma Omedes. Okay, last now, top of Memvav Amadalif, last part of the Mishnah. Rabbi Eliezer Omer, Einlo Shmir Lasakin. Rabbi Eliezer says, for a sure muad, only you have to only if you do a only if you shecht it are you exempt. Okay, you're always going to be chayev for a sure muad. Um, so Amaraba, um, Amaraba, my time of the Rebbe Eliezer. What's the reasoning of Rebbe Eliezer? Damakra, the pasuk says, "Velo yishmerenu," and the owner doesn't watch it. Shuvein lo shmir It means that lo yishmerenu means it's no longer watchable. Once a shur is a muad, then you're either you're always considered negligent because you can never be considered to fully stop it from going out, um, and therefore we just strict liability. But it sounds like once it's a muad, there's always fault. The only way you free yourself from any blame is if you shecht it. That's what lo yishmerenu is telling you. Amalei Abaye, Abaye responds to this. So if that's how we interpret the Pasuk, that it means it's not able anymore to be watched. So should we say the same by a pit? That it says, you know, and if somebody digs a pit and doesn't cover it, should we interpret it? That now if you cover the pit, you're not going to be exempt. You're always going to be chayev. Maybe you'll say that's true. But we taught in the Mishnah, that if you covered it properly and then an animal fell in, you'd be exempt. And we don't hear that, you know, Rabbi Eliezer argues on this point. So what's the difference between the pit and the ox? So Ella Amar Abai says Abai Hainu time to Rebbe Eliezer. This is the reasoning of Rebbe Eliezer. To Kedetani, like we done in the Brice of Rebbe Nason, Omer Minanchali got a lot of Kelav Rabbitoch Beso, Val Yamid Sulam Ra Uabitoch 
base. Or how do you know you shouldn't have a bat, an evil dog in your house or a rickety ladder that you should not have something that's a hazard? Or as it says, you should not have blood in your house. And that's about why you have to make a fence on a roof that somebody should not fall off your house and the blood will be on your hands. But it also means you should not have hazards in your house that can lead to other people to be damaged. Okay, but what does that tell you about why you're chayev? That just tells you you're not allowed to have it around. So if you look at Rashi, Rashi says, So therefore, since it's telling you just lo yishmerenu, lo yichasenu, by the pit or by the ox, I, would, I wouldn't say it means it's impossible. But once I learned from the Pasuk, that you have to get rid of it, now I'm going to say, V'lo yishmerenu, that tells me that it's not, it doesn't mean you didn't happen to watch it. It means, since I know anyway I got to get rid of it, it means there's no way to deal with this other than to actually shecht it. It's no longer able to be watched and you're going to be liable. So Rashi says it's this obligation to get rid of it that interacts with the Pasuk Yishmerenu to tell you that Shmira won't exempt you. Of course, there's an obvious question here, which is, then say the same thing about a pit. Say, a pit in your home is a hazard, the same way a guarded ox is a hazard, and you should be obligated to totally fill it up, you know, and um, why not also say there that you're liable? So Tosos deals with this, and if you look at Tosos, Tosos says, So why say the same thing? Okay? So the first answer Tosu says is, and then, you know, look, you know, there, an ox is a living thing. So no matter how much you watch it, it's always going to, or guard it, it's always going to try to get free. Whereas by a covered boar, you could say that you've actually rendered it like you've neutralized it. So if you're not just starting with a postulation, you're starting with the idea of, so an ox that's, a, that's an habitual gorer is much more a present hazard no matter what you do than a covered up pit, which you could say doesn't really even, no longer sort of exists as a pit. You could also say that the Torah is not, has to allow people to have pits in their homes. Okay, so that's Tosus' first answer. The Shlomo, he says, We thought that when the Mishnah said, Rebbe Eliezer said you had to slaughter it, that Rebbe Eliezer meant if you don't kill it, you're bichayv if it damages. But now when we turn to the Pasuk of Lotasim Damim Bevetecha, Okay, so now Tosa says an amazing thing. Because if you think that in the Mishnah, Rabbi Eliezer says, um, there's no way to watch it except in a knife. He never actually said that you're going to be chayev. Okay, and therefore what the Tosa understands is what the Gemara is saying is that according to Rabbi Eliezer, According to Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Eliezer might agree that you'll be exempt from damages. Okay, yes, you do a high level of shmir, you're exempt from damages, you're not negligent, etc. But there, the way that the Torah still mandates that you get rid of this. Okay, you might be that you're doing enough to not be liable civilly, but you have a religious obligation or a pus, you know, the, the mitzvah is obligating you to get rid of it. And maybe the same is true about a pit. 
Yes, if you cover it, you're exempt, but you still have to get rid of it. Again, it's a little hard to imagine that you're not allowed to have pits in your home. Okay, anyway, that is how the Gemara explains Rabbi Eliezer. Um, I like the first hand, Jeff Tosos actually better. The second one is interesting, speaking that there's two levels, civil liability and an obligation to get rid of. But the first one pointing out the difference between a live ox cannot be totally neutralized the same way a pit can be covered. Okay, Hadron Allah Shoshanaga Chabrav Hamisha. Now we take a look, at, now we begin the next. Um, the next uh, parak. Let's take a look. Shur still with goring oxes. Shur is a part of Nimsa Uba An ox goes ahead and gores a cow, and you have its fetus um, lying by it. It was a pregnant cow, and you come and you see the ox chasing the cow, and then you uh, look around, and then you, you know, you go run and you chase it, and you see a gored cow with, let's say, the bloody horns of the ox and you see the fetus lying next to the cow, okay? But there's one, so you can certainly have enough evidence that he gored and you're chayv to pay. But there's one thing you don't know. But you don't know, did the animal cow give birth first? And then it got, and, and, and the goring happened, happened, happened after it gave birth? Or did the goring happen while it was still pregnant? And the difference is obvious. If first it gave birth, and then you have the dead fetus, then the dead fetus has no, the, the, the owner of the ox has no liability for the dead fetus. This cow gave birth to a dead fetus, then my ox gored the cow. I'm liable for the cow, not for the fetus. But if it gored the cow while the cow was pregnant, then my ox did two things, kill the cow and, you know, and the fetus. Okay, so what do you do? Do you pay for the fetus or not? So you pay half damages for the cow because... The, this, assuming it's a short tom that gores, a short pays for half the damage that it caused, half the damage for the cow, and a quarter of the damages for the fetus. Okay, why? Because if you definitely gored the fetus, you should be paying for half the cost of the fetus. But you don't know. So this we're going to see in the Gemara is the, you know, is the, this mission is going like Subchis. And Subchis says, When there's a doubt as to whether there's a liability or not, and of course the question is, how do you define what constitutes a, a balanced doubt? But if there's a balanced doubt here, you know something happened, you don't know before or after or so on, there's no way to find out, you split the difference, okay? So had I known for sure my ox had gored the fetus, I would be paying for half the fetus. Since I don't know for sure, it's like, it's 50-50, we'll call it 50-50, I will pay for ha- a qu- half of the half. I'll pay a quarter of the damages of the fetus. Let's say you've got a cow that is so, I don't know, you know, mad and violent that it actually successfully gored a, gored a bull, okay, gored an ox. The cow gored the ox. And this was a pregnant cow. And the question here is whether was it pregnant when it gored? And, and now you find the, you know, the dead ox, the goring cow, and the fetus of the cow near the cow. And the question was, did it give birth before or after the goring? Okay. Uh, did it, um, you know, um, did it give birth before it gored? And therefore, you can only collect from the cow itself, right? Because remember, as a tom, you can only collect up to the value of the animal itself. So if it gave birth first and then gored, then the owner of the ox can only collect his damages from the cow, not from the fetus as well. Okay? So therefore, what would you do? 
so mishdalim chati nezek mina parvia via nezek mina vlad. The owner can collect half of his damages from the cow and a quarter of his damages from the fetus. Now, that doesn't seem to make any sense. What it should say is he could collect his damages definitely from the cow because the cow definitely gored. And it's doubtful if he can collect his damages from the fetus. So, you know, maybe if he needs still to collect from the fetus or whatever in order to pay for the damages, maybe he can only collect up to half the value of the fetus. That's what you should have said. That's not what the Mishnah says. So we will take a look at what, how the Gemara explains the end of the Mishnah. Let's take a look at the Gemara now. The Mishnah that says you split, that's the position of Somchis. Of Money that is suspended in doubt, you divide, you split the difference. And of course, there's a whole discussion in the Rishonim, what type of a doubt constitutes a doubt. Ba- you know, they say it has to be a balanced doubt. Each side has to have a legitimate claim. Fine. But under certain circumstances, you split it. But the Chachamim say, No, this is a very, the, one of the most major principles in Dine Mominus. If you are coming to try to get somebody else to pay up, the burden of proof is on the litigant, okay? Is, you know, is on the person bringing the suit. So if I want to prove that you damaged me, we don't say, oh, well, 50-50 split it. I'm trying to extract money from you. I have the burden of proof, all right? And therefore, if you can't, in this case, let's talk about the case about the ox scoring the cow, the simpler case. So the owner of the ox says, you want me to pay for your fetus? Prove that it was still pregnant when I gored the cow. Since you can't prove it, I'm not going to pay. You want me to pay? It's your burden of proof. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Why do you have to introduce it like this is a big principle? Why don't you just say it? You know, it seems like you're trying to say that it's such a strong principle, it applies in a wide range of cases. So what's the wide range? It's true. You need to say that. Even if the Nizak were to say, I know that it was still pregnant when you gored it. And the Mazik said, I don't know, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. You still say, okay? So this means that, you know, because there's a general discussion in the Gemara, Bari Veshemas, Bari Adif or not Bari Adif. I say you owe me $100, and you say, I don't know. I don't remember if I borrowed, I didn't borrow from you. Do we say that even with no evidence, the strength of my definite claim is strong enough to win out if you're not countering it with a definite claim in the opposite direction? That's the question of Bar Yivashemba, okay? And here the Gemara is saying that if you say Zeklogodol, it means that even that if you're trying to get money from me, even if you say, I definitely owe you money, and I say, I don't know, maybe yes, maybe no, we still say, even though I have not said, answered your definite with a def- yes with a definite no, you still have not brought proof. You still just have a claim and a raya. Now, Tosos has whole long discussions about a lot of other factors about when we may or may not say this true. He d- introduces an idea called a baritov and a bar and a baridarua and a shematov and a shemagarua that like a, a, a bad bari is when I say you definitely own something and you don't know, you know, you you wouldn't know if I'm lying. That's a weak bari. A strong bari is if you would know that I'm lying and I say it anyway. 
A bad Shema is when you should know and you don't know. I don't know if I borrowed. So bury, if I say you borrowed $100 and you said, I don't know, that's a strong bury because you, would, you should know if I'm lying. And it's a bad Shema because, you know, you should know if it were true or not. So that may be, you know, bury wins. There's a, then there's a case of a bari garua, which is that, like, you wouldn't know if I'm lying. And a shema tov is you had no reason to know, so you're saying maybe isn't, you know, isn't a weakness. So there's all those factors, other factors as well. Anyway, whole, whole things to figure out. But the general principle here is saying is, even if a case of bari and shema. All right. Um... Okay, or it's coming to tell you another principle that Bari and Shem, that, excuse me, Hamotz Mechaver Lavariah applies even in the following case. Right, we taught. Hamokas Shur Lechavero, Venimsen Akhin. So he sells an ox to somebody else, and it turns out that this ox has a goring nature to it. And let's even say that it was known to the Omer ahead of time. Who knows? Rav Amar, Harizemekotos, that is a a sale, you know, a. a, a, a a, 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 a false sale, not false, whatever, a deceptive sale, okay, a sale in error. This person, not necessarily deceptive, might have been, but that's the point. The point was, is an error. We can assume that people want to buy oxes for, um, oxen for um, plowing, and therefore, had he known it was goring, he wouldn't have bought it, so that was a material thing that wasn't being, that wasn't being said, and therefore, it was a mekartos, okay, and he gets his money back. And Shmuel says that you can say no, uh, you know, you didn't say you wanted it for plowing. Um, and I was, uh, so I assumed you wanted it to, uh, you know, you were going to shecht it and you were going to turn it into meat. And therefore, it's not a mekartos. All right. Now, you, so, so let's take, the Gemara will sort of spell out the circumstances and then we'll see how this applies to Hamotzi Mechavero. So the Gemara says, Amai, v'nechsi yigavadizavim l'radi yigavadizavim l'nechsesa. So the Gemara says, wait, wait a minute. Let's first try to figure out from circumstantial evidence, you know, because it also goes to like what people had a right to expect and so on. So if, is this a guy that normally he's known to be selling, you know, cows for butchers, you know, for meat? Or is a guy that's normally known to be selling cows to farmers for plowing? And once we determine that, then we'll know whether it was, you know, implicitly misrepresented or not and whether, what the person had a right to expect. So the Gemara says, no, lo, tzricha, you need it for the following case. This guy will sell to farmers, he'll sell to butchers, so you could infer nothing from the fact that he was selling it. Okay, so the Gemara says, So the Gemara says, okay, but let's see how much he was asking for it. You know, it's something is that plowing cows, you know, are go for a higher price than cows that are going for the slaughter. So let's look at the money and use that to determine what the implicit assumption and understanding was. All very reasonable that you look at those types of things. You know, Tosas has a question from other sugyas where it doesn't seem like you pay attention to that circumstantial evidence, but the Gemara here is making a very reasonable assumption that that should indicate what the presumed assumptions of the sale were. Um, so the Gemara says, Lo Okay, oh, we're talking about a case where actually right now the meat market is uh, very high, cost of meat, and the cow would go for the same amount. So you didn't know what the guy was selling it. You the, there was no evidence based on the type of seller he was. There was no evidence based on the price. But this guy says, still, I, want, I don't want a cow that I need to slaughter. I want a cow for plowing. Give me my money back. So the Gemara says, Amri, 
So before we even yet still get, get to Amot Mechavero, the Gemara is going to say, one minute, this cow now is worth the amount that you paid for it, so, and you just want your money back, so one minute. So the Gemara says like this, okay, so Rav says it's a Mechatos, which means I have to give the money back. But why can't I, if I'm the seller, say, if I don't have the cash on me, and you want, you want, you know, a refund, I'll say, okay, fine, give me back the cow. Um, you want a refund? Oh, I don't have cash on me. Here, I'll refund your money in cow. I'll give you the cow back. So you're be- once again stuck with the cow. So, you know, it's an interesting question. You go to a store, right? You want store credit, you get your cash back. You know, what's the, you know, you really want the cash, but like, will they always give you the cash back? So the Gemara says, because people say from you know the um, from the person that um, that that is in debt to you that you can you should even be should even be willing to like be to accept even like uh, you know draws like you know um, 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 fodder or any type of a thing you know in payment so so okay I owe money to you I have to reimburse you. I'll give you back the cow. That's my payment for you, okay, if I don't have the cash. So the Gemara says, you need it for the case, that actually I do have cash. So if I have cash, I have to give you back cash, okay? So Shmuel, so Rav says, take back the cow, give him back the cash. And Shmuel, and Shmuel says, no, you know, he, I can still say, look, I assumed you wanted it for slaughter, you proved to me that you wanted it for something else. Because Rav is willing to go by the majority. And most people sell things for, for uh, plowing, and therefore it's a mechotos. That you can say, I sold it for shechita. Okay, period. Now, so that's what it's coming to tell you. It's coming to tell you that in this case, you don't just use the fact that in general, the majority of people buy it for X, since there's no evidence from the case itself what the selling was for. Therefore, Shmuel says it's not a mekachtos. Now, I have to tell you that this is like, you know, um, like such a different case than the earlier cases, right? The earlier cases were questions about like what factually happened. Did the, when did the cow give birth? Did you borrow money or not? You're saying you borrowed money. You're saying you don't remember. Did it happen? Did it not happen? Do we say, who has the burden of proof? Okay, here, you know, it's a question about a sale and was there a meeting of minds or not and what did people have a right to assume or not assume and Rav is somehow saying, you know, you have a right to assume that unless specified otherwise, this is going by what the majority of times things are happening. And Shmuel is making a very, you know, simple statement of like, buyer beware. Like, uh, no, you know, if things aren't clear and explicit and spelled out, then nobody has any obligation to tell you and you're sort of stuck. Right? It seems anyway like a very different type of a debate than the normal question of which is why the Gemara sort of says it's a separate point. Okay, now we're going to ask this question, do we really say about this point that we don't go by Rov? So the Gemara says, One minute. What do you mean? I, I thought that we always go by Rov. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I should pause for a second. However, even though this case is different, 
from the you know, previous one, right, in the sense that this was about a meeting of minds and a mechatos, it had an additional chiddish that you ignore rove. So if you think about it, we've had three cases. In our Mishnah, it was an equal suffix. We don't say split. We say, In the case where I say, you borrowed $100 from me and you say, I don't know, then that, there we go by, we say, even when it's a vadai against a shema, and here we're going to say even in the face of a rove, ignoring the fact of the meeting of the minds and just sort of a simple case of rove. We would still say right? You could have an easier case of that if you imagine it was a factual question. It was 60% likely that the cow gave birth, you know, before rather than after. You still, or whatever. You still wouldn't go by rove. You would say so now the Gemara says, the laws lina basaruba, do we not go by rove? The, the general principle of the Torah that you go by rove. Okay? Like, you know, if you, uh, you want to know, is this, uh, you know, is, is this a kosher piece of meat, not a kosher piece of meat, all these different types of questions that you say, you know, you go by rove. So the Gemara says, no, ki lina basaruba bi'isura. That's to determine, like, the halachic status of something. When it comes to money, we don't go by rove. You have the burden of proof. Okay, which means that, right, you do go by rove when you don't know, let's say, the status of this piece of meat. Did I buy it from a kosher store or not kosher store? If there were nine kosher and one not kosher, you know, it's the questions like that. You assume it came from the majority. Um, and, but that's when you want to know the status of something. And it's in doubt, so you assume it's status based on the majority. Here, it's about, you know, litigants. You want me to pay you money? So you're coming to me and trying to extract money from me? You have a burden of proof, and Rove doesn't satisfy the burden of proof. Okay. Tanya Namiyachi. Now, we taught similarly that our mission is going like Sumchis and that the Chachamim disagree. Going back to that first point, that it was Sumchis and the Chachamim say, an ox. Gored, uh, uh, gored a cow, and you found the uh, fetus by, uh, by its side. You don't know if it was, if it gave birth before or after it was gored. You play half damages for the cow, because it definitely gored the cow, and a quarter for the fetus. It may be gored the fetus, so you split you split it. It should have been half, but it's a half of a half, it's a quarter. Okay, so there it's very clear that that's a debate of Sumchus and the Chachamim. Where do you know this principle from? That you have the burden of proof. Shenemar, the Pasuk says, Moshe says, I'm going up to Arsinai, I'm leaving Aaron and Chor, whoever has a matter, you come to them. So what does that mean? Yagish raya elehem. That if you want to go ahead and you have, you're the litigant, you know, you're the guy that's making the claim, you have to produce the evidence if you want to win now. You have a baldvarim, you're trying to demand something from somebody else, you have to produce the evidence. Okay, maskivli ravashi, ravashi challenges. Halamli cross, why do I need a pasuk? It's svara. By the way, that idea itself is, you know, for some, you know, comment, it's, some people point out how powerful that is. You know, the sort of the power of like, the, sort of like, you know, the human, the, ra- the, the, the human element of Torah Shabbat Peh and the, you know, the rational sort of power of, of, of just the rational thought is that, the, that a pasuk is not weightier than something I could have known just from Svara. Why do I need a pasuk? I, could, I knew it anyway from Svara. I knew it anyway logically. 
The guy who has the pain, he's the one that has to go to the doctor. Okay? So if you're the one that you want to collect and you're the one that's the litigant, you're the one that has the responsibility to, you know, to, to, to bring the proof. Now, it's a little funny because you could say, yeah, I mean, you got to go to the doctor. Fine. Like, you know, the guy who I'm suing isn't going to court. I'm the one who's going to court. Okay. But does that exactly make the statement that I have the burden of proof? Once I'm suing him and it's in court, maybe we should sort of say, I don't know, you know, split it if if there's evidence both ways. Right. So it's not exactly clear why he feels that you don't need a Pusuk to teach you this principle. But anyway, Elakra, the Prusuk for him, so he thinks you know from Zvara. So what's the Pasuk telling you? Like the teacher of Nachman name of Rabbi Barvua. How do you know that if you have somebody that is, you know, suing and somebody else is a countersuit, how do you know that you first deal with the suit and only afterwards do you deal with the countersuit? The person who has the matter, who pushes the matter, he's the one that sort of comes first and, and presents it first. There are times when actually you would first attend to the one being sued who then made a countersuit. Why? Let's say that his property is being devalued because you have to go to the, you know, deal with the suit, the person who brought the suit. You're dealing with that suit first. And in the meantime, this person is being pressured because he has creditors and because he's not able to deal with his countersuit, his creditors are taking advantage of the situation and he's having to like, you know, discount the value of his property. In that type of a case where he's losing out by going to him second, you would deal with him first. All right, fine. So that's the basic point. So you first deal with the suit and then the countersuit. Of course, there's a big debate about Rashi how do you, and, and Tosos. How do you define what's the suit and what's the countersuit, right? Why, I mean, just because I produced it second means that I'm the nitva and he's the toveya. You know, maybe my countersuit is, is just as much as I'm the baldvarim and he's, you know, in my, in my countersuit, I'm the toveya and he's the nitva. So it's not exact, I mean, there's, it's not exactly clear how exactly you categorize this, but the basic principle we understand. Okay. Now we move to the second part of the Mishnah, the hard part to understand. The ox gored the, the, the cow gored the ox. And you don't know if it had the fetus in it or it didn't have the fetus in it. So what it should have said is, you can collect, so you collect half of the damages of the ox, the half damages of the damaged thing, and you can collect it from, the whole cow is there to collect from, and half of the fetus is available to collect from. That's what you should have said, but that's not what the Mishnah said. The Mishnah said, Half damages from the cow and a quarter damages from the fetus. So the Gemara says, Chatzin Nezek, Ravian Nezek. What do you mean half damages and a quarter nez- damages? First of all, that sounds like you're going to collect three quarters damages. That's not true. Pagan is good to buy Shlume. So you, 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 you're only entitled to collect half damages. Full minus a quarter, three quarters damages. Since when did you get a right to collect three quarters damages? Which is what the Mishnah sounds like. So Amar Baye. So Abai says, what it means is half of the half and a quarter of the half, okay? So what it means is, is that you are, it's like, let's assume the following case. Let's assume that the cow gored the ox and the ox was worth 200. So you have a right to collect 100. 
Now, we're going to assume that the fetus is an equal gorer to the ox. To the you know as the cow, the cow with its feet is gored, and Tosu says that we're just doing this for simplicity's sake. Obviously, we would figure it out proportionally, but let's assume that we decide who who like you know who gored by their weight. So you know, let's say the cow was were, was weighed ninety pounds and the fetus weighed ten pounds. We would and we saw them as two gorers. They were all combined in this one animal of the cow, but they were two things doing the goring. So you would collect ninety percent from the cow and ten percent from the fetus. Somehow you would divide it proportionally. But for simplicity's sake, we're going to say call it fifty-fifty. The mission is sort of dealing with that as an as if. Okay, so here I am. I have a dead ox, two hundred. I'm entitled to collect a hundred. I have two things that gored me, assuming the fetus was, was in the cow. The cow and the fetus. So I can collect my 100, 50 from the cow, 50 from the fetus. That's what I would do if I knew the fetus was there. Since I don't know that the fetus was there, I only collect 25 from the fetus. So I'm going to collect 50 from the cow and 25 from the fetus. That's what the Mishnah is telling you, okay? So, which means that you look at them as equal gores and you divide, not mean, or proportional, but well, for simplicity, we're going to call it equal, and you divide. You can only collect, you know, half of the damages you're entitled to, which is half of a half. You're entitled to half of your 200, 100. Half of that half you can collect from the cow. That's when it says chatsi nezek from the cow, half of your half. And you can collect the other half from the fetus, but only not really half, only a quarter because of mamanamuta basafek. So that's going to be a quarter of your half. Okay, so that's how it's going to work out. Amr by chazi nezek echad arba It really means a quarter. It means half of what you were entitled, the damages you were entitled to, which started off being half. Okay, so half of what you were entitled to. For a via, okay, so, and for a via nezek, so, so let's do it again. So, Amar Baye, Chatsi nezek, Echad Be'arba Benezek. So half damages really means a quarter. It means half of the half you're entitled to. For a via nezek, and a quarter means Echad Mishmon Benezek, an eighth, a quarter of what you're entitled to. Okay, which is not a bad read of the Mishnah. Okay, so basically, Whatever you're entitled to because of your dead ox, half of it you get from the cow, and a quarter of it you get from the fetus. That's easy. Not fine. Now, if the cow and the ox and the, and the fetus all belong to the same owner, right? You could sell the fetus within the cow, but assuming that you did it, they all belong to the same owner. Then I wouldn't consider it two gorers. This is all your one big cow. I see as one big gorer, and I'm going to collect my full damages from the cow. I don't have to split it between the cow and the fetus. Think of the fetus as a leg. You don't have to tell me, oh, I have to take 10% from this leg and 10% from that leg or whatever. I'm entitled to take it from whichever part of this animal gourd. So fine, if you own both the cow and the fetus, I'll collect my full half damages from the cow. I don't have to split it between the two. So that can't be what's going on in the Mishnah. No, the case is I sold the fetus uh, the fetus, you know, was sold to a different person. Shimon owns the, Ruben owns the cow, and Shimon owns the fetus. And therefore, you know, therefore, I, it's not fair to take it from one and not the other. I do have to split it. 
So I take half from Ruvain, half from Shimon. Again, assuming that we're going to treat the Vlad as if it did half the damage, which Tosa says really means proportional. So from Ruvain, I get the, the full half of the damages I'm entitled to, half of the half. And from Shimon, I only get a quarter. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Um, so the Gemara says one minute. But if you went ahead and first, you know, went to the cow, owner of the cow, to Ruvain, and you got your half, So he says, if that were true in that scenario, you know, Shimon, Ruvain owned the cow, Shimon owned the, owned the fetus, and they gored me, and now I have to decide where I'm going to collect my $100 from, which is half of the damages. Why don't I start by going to Ruvain and saying, Ruvain, I know your cow gored me. Therefore, and you know your cow gored me. We have evidence of that. Therefore, um, it's questionable if Shimon was involved in it. Maybe the cow gave birth beforehand. Okay? So you're definitely obligated to me. And if you want to get off and put half of that obligation on Shimon, you have a responsibility to prove that Shimon was there. And since you can't, I'm entitled to collect fully from you. Okay? So that's what the Gemara assumes. You know, it's a little question, how does that fit into like, but anyway, but here we're dealing with Sumchis. Sumchis doesn't hold of And also there's a Varai Chiyuv here, and you're trying to get out of the Chiyuv. Ella, it must be that I first went to Shimon. And I said, Shimon, I think you were involved. Give me half. And Shimon says, no, it gave birth first. So we say, okay, we'll split it. I'll take a quarter from you. Then I go to Ruvain, and Ruvain says, You went to Shimon, you showed that you think that you already concede that Shimon was involved. You're claiming Shimon was involved. You collected a quarter from Shimon, so now you're only entitled to collect the remaining half from me. Okay. So that's one way of interpreting it. So what Abai said is, half and a quarter don't mean half of the 200 damages. It means half of what I'm entitled to. Half of what I'm entitled to, I get from the cow. And a quarter of what I'm entitled to, I get from the fetus. That works if they're separate owners. Then I have to deal with them separately. And by the fetus, we say, but that would only be when I go to the owner of the fetus first. Otherwise, I would be entitled to say to, to, to Ruvain, the owner of the cow, prove to me that Shimon was involved. Some say, No, maybe even I did go to Ruvain first. No, Ruvain could still get out to it. The Amarle, he could say, I know that Ruvain was involved, you know, so you don't have a right, uh, you know, to demand from me that I pay you more than half. Okay, I mean, it's sort of like getting into that Motsi type of a thing. I know I, yes, you owe, you damaged me, but you can't, prove, you can't prove that I was involved in more than half of the damage, so I'm only going to pay you half. Okay, so we will end with this. This is a Abai's explanation, and then we will see tomorrow that Rava will give it a uh, very, uh, um, uh, a very different read of the Mishnah.